God, we thank you for today. We thank you for this moment. We thank you for the opportunity to come and worship you. We thank you for the opportunity to come and change our minds, to sit and and move in our hearts, that you would shape us, that you would guide us, that you would offer us a new life and a new way of thinking and a new hope and a future, God. That today we will meet you in a fresh and new way. And that maybe if we thought we've known you for our whole lives, that today you would peel back some of the blinders and some of the the obstacles we've put between right connection with you. That you'd break those walls and those barriers down. That you would give us a new opportunity and a new life and a new future. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, we are starting a new series today, and this is, normally my series only lasts four weeks to six weeks. That is intentional, because we all know that we don't have very long attention spans, and, uh, but usually uh, they're, they're pretty small. This one is going to be a long one, and it's going to go probably, I actually don't know when it's going to end, but it probably will go and, uh, through Father's Day. And what we're going to be doing is tackling this series called This I Believe, And so you'll be hearing this, the song that we just sang a lot. Now for you that grew up in the Church of God, the lyrics of that song are foreign to you. You're going, okay, that's kind of a neat song, I like it. If you grew up in a different kind of tradition, you knew all those words. Because that's the Apostles' Creed. Um, it's kind of a big deal for a lot of other traditions. And in fact, I had a woman in this church accost me in a pancake house and ask me, Jared, I got a question for you. K-Minch. And, <laughs> and I, said, I said, oh, what do I do now? You know, uh, I said, yes, Kay, what, what, uh, what, what can I help you with? And she's there with all of her friends at the Pancake House, and I'm like, uh-oh, I am in trouble. This is like a firing squad going to come happen at the pastor. And so and she said, come here, come here. And so I came over and said, hi, how are you doing, everybody? And she said, why don't we say the creed on Sunday morning? And I was like, that's a great question. Because we are, we don't, we don't do the creed. We're non-creedal, is what the, the t- which the people at the table are like, ah, you're going to hell. Uh, and so I was uh, very concerned with this. Like, no, 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 no. Okay, the creed is fine. The creed is good. We're okay with the creed. We're just not, we don't do the creed. We, we, don't, don't shoot me. Okay, we don't, we don't recite the creed on Sunday morning because we believe the Bible is the creed, what we should base our theology off of. Okay, now that sounds very high and mighty. I don't do that because I read the Bible. Do you really read the Bible? Because you can't say that with haughtiness unless you've been studying the scripture. Mm-hmm, all right. So, but that is why we don't do the creed on Sunday morning is because one of the two things that founded the Church of God of Anderson, the two defining factors that, that we split off from everybody else uh, in 1880 was one, we don't do church membership, and two, we don't do the creed. Those are the two major things that made us split off. So if you're wondering, you want a little history lesson about the Church of God of Anderson, that's it. Why? First is this. Uh, in the, the creedal system, why the... I'll do the church membership first because it's faster. The church membership thing is, is really a big deal in the 1880s to be a part of a Presbyterian church, a Methodist church, a whatever. That's free Methodists. We're really close to the free Methodists and the Nazarenes. Free Methodists are cool because uh, Methodists, they're called free Methodists because you didn't have to have a nameplate on your pew to where you sat. Before that, if you ever go back into old Methodist church and you're going to see these nameplates on a pew, that family bought that pew and that is their pew and don't you dare sit your behind on that pew. A free Methodist said, sit wherever you want. They were radicals, okay? Uh, so cr- I got crazy in the free Methodist church. Uh, but that was, that's why we are kin- kindred spirits with them. So we don't have membership because we say, hey, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're a member of our church. Now, 
early on, we also said, you have to do everything that we say. So, but you can't be a part of that church. So it was kind of this exclusive club thing that was awkward. So we're trying to reclaim that as a, uh, uh, as a movement, but it's really, hey, if you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are a member of this church. Welcome. Now, at Grow, if you come to Grow and you say, Jared, I signed a document at Grow. It's not a, a membership thing. It's just saying, hey, we're going to support this church uh, with our time, talent, and treasure. Okay, so we don't have a membership that is passed between churches. We don't, you want, if you move to this area and you go, well, my pastor has to send you my card or whatever, some of you are like, what are you talking about? This is a thing. I, we don't have to do any of that stuff, okay? Um, it's, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, Welcome. Um, it's pretty, pretty uh, high threshold there for membership, and we love it that way. Second thing is the non-creedal issue. Where the creed came from is that we have, um, we're talking 300 AD. You've got a bunch of people who, who can't read. You have an illiterate society starting to happen there as the Dark Ages start. No one's reading the scripture because they can't. Hardly even the priests can read the, the, the scripture. And so you have this issue of, well, um, what are we going to do? Because these people don't know what the heck they're believing. And you get all these different incorporations of pagan rituals. And you get all these other things going on. And the guys sat down and they said, wait a minute. We've got to have a bare bones, cliff notes versions of the gospel so everybody can recite it and go, this is what I'm supposed to believe. I believe in God the Father. And so that's where you get the creedal statement. It's the cliff notes version for people who can't read. Now, that gets incorporated into every church service that happens from then until the Reformation. And little tweaks on different creeds start to happen. But that's where it starts. And why? It's beautiful, right? I'm trying to give the hope of the theology 101 basics of what you're supposed to believe, what needs to be imprinted on your heart in this creed. The problem is, is when the creed supersedes reading the scripture. It is not co-equal with the scripture. It is not there. You can't say, oh, I don't have to read my Bible today. I recited the creed. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. They, that does not work. And so you see these people putting basis on creeds and theological statements in the 1800s when the Church of God is being formed. And they say, no, 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 no. Let's throw away all that stuff and get back to the Scripture. Because in the 1800s, you can get a Bible. You can't get it as easily as we can now. We can download 16 of them on our phone in a matter of seconds. But you still could get a Bible. So that was that shift of why we're not creedal and why you don't see it. In fact, in the Church of God, for singing that last song, probably in the, about the 1930s, you guys would get mad and call Pastor Eric or uh, send him a telegraph or whatever you do then and say, uh, we got this heretic pastor up at Shorewood. You need to come up here and, and, and take his credentials away uh, because they were so non-creedal. Now, if you guys want to call him and tell him that I'm a heretic pastor, he'll probably laugh at you, um, but you're more than welcome to. Uh, so uh, he'd probably enjoy some of those conversations. I'm having lunch with him tomorrow. It'd be a fun conversation. Um, but that we don't have to suffer that because the idea of, you know what, the creed in its own purpose is fine. We're not battling this creedal issue. Um, but that's why we're singing that song is because we're going to be dealing with what we believe for the next long period of time. This idea of what do we actually believe? Because we live in a fantastic country where I can believe in the Loch Ness Monster if I want to, and no one can tell me different. I can believe that the Cubs are the greatest baseball team in the history of mankind, and I would be so wrong. And I could be a Sox fan, and I could even be one of those heathen Cardinal fans, right? (laughs) But I have complete autonomy to believe it. I got more reaction out of bashing on Cardinals fans than I've ever gotten in my whole entire life. Um, 
That's the passion involved in that. All right. You can believe all of those different things. And in our country, that's okay. But that also boils down into some very, 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 very serious things that we need to have conversations about. And we, we've kind of gotten into a place in our country, if you've noticed, that um, we're not willing to listen to anyone who disagrees with us. We just want to shout louder than them if we disagree with them on issues of politics, on issues of religion, on issues of, uh, of really, really important things. We're allowed to believe anything we want, but in the Christian context, what does that mean for us? How do we base what we believe where, where do we get our foundation? It's got to be the scripture. And so what we're going to be, be exploring for the next bunch of weeks is today is going to be all about how do we form what we believe. And that's called theology. That's a big you know, $5 church word, right? But all it really means is to talk about God. Anything you say, theology is to talk about God. Biology is to talk about, uh, about, about life. And to, it's, that's what it means. We'll put an ology at the end of it so we sound cooler. Whatever. Um, but theology really is just what do you really believe? And let's talk about this. And so I want to give us a basis and, and maybe a different filter in which we we make our viewpoints, because we've got vastly differing uh, opinions right here in this church. Right. If anything about this political season showed you is that uh, one, how to how to how to go huh? uh, on Facebook. Right. People will spout their political opinions, and you go, huh, I did not know that was coming. And, and that is perfectly okay, because now we get to know them a little bit better. Now, at the end of the day, can we still be friends? Absolutely. Can we still be Christians at the same time? Ooh, yes, we can. How do we do that? we got to build a theology at the, at the, uh, at the basis of who we are that, is, that can incorporate all these different things. But also, as we start to build our theology, we have to be willing to change our minds on stuff. We have to be willing to say, you know what? My preconceived notions, the things that I've been taught, the things that I've, I've, I've seen, the things that I've read, the things that I've agreed with my whole life, when rubbed up against the truth of the gospel, am I right or am I wrong? And which one needs to move? And that requires humility. Because there's things that I really, really, really hold dear and true, and I have, to, I have built walls around them. And I, have, I will guard them, and I will attack anybody that comes close to it. But at the end of the day, I have to be willing, I have to be humble enough, I have to be malleable enough to say, Holy Spirit, is, am I wrong in this? Do I need to change my views on, on whatever it is, on how, the, how we should treat the earth, to how uh, I should parent, to my, my thought on abortion, to my thought on all these different things, like the whole gamut of all politics? Because actually, all those questions are really theological questions. Every question, how we deal with our, our spouses, how we deal with our parents, those are theological questions. How we parent our children is a theological question. And so, we, you know, Jared, I keep, my, I keep my political stuff separate than my church stuff. Well, you can't. Because if you're one person, you can't be consistent through all of it and keep them all separate. You can start juggling a bunch of different balls, and then all of a sudden you don't know who you are anymore. That's not who we want to be. 
This is important because of this. What we believe dictates how we act. And how we act dictates how others see us. What we believe dictates how we act and how we act dictates how others see us. The Washington is in a mess right now trying to figure out even the evangelical right. By definition, their definition of the evangelical right, we are the evangelical right. Some of you are like, oh, that's not me. But you are in an evangelical church, right, filled 90% with white people that, you know, by their demographics, they would, they would say, oh, all these people voted this way, right? But I could go around and be like, you didn't vote this way, and you didn't vote this way, and you didn't vote this way. And we all voted different ways. And so we're this enigma to Washington because we, we can't be put in that kind of group. I kind of like that. I think it's more of a, a beauty thing that we can get along and love each other and still disagree with things. But there's a truth in the bottom of all that is how, are we, how do we ha- maintain such diversity in thought? How do we know and live with each other and say, you know what, we can disagree on this and still follow the same God and still love each other. Because that's important. Because that's not been happening. In the, since the election, church attendance across America has gone down 14%. Across America, church attendance has gone down 14% since the election. Now you can easily say, well, that's Trump. And you can easily say, thanks, Obama. Right? You can, those things can, can pop into our heads, and wait a second. Since the election, in November, church attendance has gone down 14%. There's a, kind of a couple of things that have happened since the November election. It's a little thing called Christmas. It's a little thing called Easter. Those are the two most uh, best attended seasons of the year, and church attendance across the country is down. Church attendance in this church is down since the election. Like you can, we, I graph it. You go, since the election. Why is that? People have thought, hey, that church must have backed this candidate. This church must have backed the other candidate. This church talked too much about politics. This church talked too little about politics. Everybody's got their own reason, and that's not just here in Shorewood, but that is in churches across the country. 14% in what, a five-month time period? That is insane. That is something we got to grab a hold of and go, whoa, 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 what's going on? And so the impetus of this whole series is to say, what do we actually believe? Because apparently people in our lives and people across the country are putting our faith in something that might not hold true. What we believe dictates how we act and how we act dictates how others see us. I was hesitant to talk about theology. I don't like talking about theology. I really didn't like talking about theology in college because um, and the, everyone thought I was really opinionated in college. I'm still pretty opinionated if you know me, but I was really obnoxiously opinionated. And you might still say, Jared, you are still obnoxious. But the, I was, I mean, it's just brash and ugh. I, do, I do not like who I was. And I repent from that. Okay. Um, but everybody said, oh, Jared's going to love the theology class. He can go in there and start all kinds of arguments. And I did not want to go to the theology class because I did not want to go start a bunch of arguments. Because at a liberal arts Christian university, theology class is basically the definition of this scripture, 2 Timothy 2.14. Remind everyone about these things. Command them in God's presence 
to stop fighting over words. Such arguments are useless and they can ruin those who hear them. This is the definition of theology class. Argument over words and can ruin people. We had people studying for ministry. They felt a divine call on their life to go into ministry. They went into theology class and they quit. And they drop out of school and they said, never mind, I'll go be a plumber because I don't want to deal with the junk that surrounds that. I didn't want to go to this class. And so I'm hesitant to bring it up for us because I don't want to have all these problems and issues. And so as I, I delve into the topics and I, I work in that, it's like, well, there's got to be a problem. There's got to be a solution to how we can know we have good theology. How at the end of the day, I can know that I'm teaching my kids right and I'm teaching my, uh, and I'm participating in faith with my spouse right and how, how this all works, that I'm living in community right. How do I have good theology? It's something that we don't really talk about very often. And so I want us to know and, and to dive into the deeper issues of, oh yeah, it, it affects how we deal with money and parenting and marriage, how we deal with our, our aging parents. It affects all of our ideas and all kinds of things throughout our life. Because at, at the root of it, every question we have is actually a theological question. Our theology informs and reflects how we interact with the world. Our theology informs and reflects how we interact with the world. It determines how we deal with the major issues of life. How do we deal with it? What, are, what is the end result? What is the conclusion that we come up with? And it shows the world how we deal with the major issues of life. If we were to have a witness in this world, if we are to affect our community, if we are actually to have a voice in the public sphere, we need to have a good theology. Because people have no patience for hypocrisy. You want to get written off by your friend? that you're trying to talk about about Christ to have hypocrisy in your faith walk. It's, 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 it's so, especially for millennials who've dealt with hypocrisy, their first president they remember got impeached. Right? And so everything in authority that they've ever seen has been a hypocrite. Everything. And that nothing about that has changed. It just continues to happen. And so if we want to reach the next generation for Christ, we've got to remove hypocrisy from the equation and our theology informs and reflects how we interact with the world. This is the broad strokes of this whole series. So I hope you're starting to understand why we're talking about this for the next few weeks, because this is really, 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 really important. Everyone has theology, but not everyone has a good theology. Everyone has a theology, but not everyone has a good theology. And I've been around a lot of people that have had theologies, but I'm like, well, that is broken because of this, this, and this. And sometimes I've spoken up, and sometimes I just bit my tongue because it wasn't worth the argument. But everyone has a theology, but not everyone has a good theology. So what forms a good theology? What, what basis is that? And so I want to give you three different things today that we can examine our own faith. We can examine the building blocks of how we started to build our own faith and what we believe and the filters in which we interpret the world and the scripture and how do we come up with answers to that, okay? 
So I want to give you this building block, and it's going to be probably a little bit more simple than you think. But as I was thinking about this, as I was preparing for this message, I started thinking about sitting at the dinner table with my kids, being a, a, developing a theology and passing on a theology is a lot like serving dinner to your children. Now, if you've ever served dinner to young people, whether they're your own kids or somebody else's kids, you know that this is a very interesting idea, right? You have two different kinds of theories on the dinner time with your kids. One, I'm your waiter, and I will, you know, it's a custom sous chef. I'll do whatever you want. If you want chicken nuggets, you get chicken nuggets. I don't care. Just slam this in your face and eat something, right? And we've all been there. I'm just like, Lord Jesus, just let me get through mealtime. And then we've been to another. Well, I fix this, and you're going to like it. It's more my style, hopefully with less screaming. Um, but so we have these two diverging thoughts, and I want to kind of just poke at that a little bit. And uh, so I want to take you to a meal in our house. I cook a salmon dinner, a nice salmon dinner, on a, you know, with it's a honey balsamic glaze on top of it. It's very nice. Uh, little uh, garlic cloves. Yeah, it's, it's marinated in this. It's just, oh, it's good. But I cook this whole thing of salmon, this honey, uh, garlic, and balsamic vinaigrette uh, glaze. I cook um, oven-roasted asparagus with it. It's a little garlic salt. Don't go ooh before you tried it. Uh, come over to my house. You will eat that. Uh, so, with the, gar- with the, the, the garlic salt uh, asparagus, a little olive oil drizzled on top of it. Then I'll have some roasted potatoes with some rosemary. And of course, your ubiquitous EVOO uh, drizzled on top of that. And this wonderful meal with the scents flowing through the house. And my Mouth is starting to water because this just the beautiful aromas that are going on. I sit down at the dinner table and I've served my family this meal that I've painstakingly taken. Thing is, I have two seven-year-olds. And I don't know if you've met seven-year-olds, but salmon's usually not on the biggest list of takers for seven-year-olds, and neither is asparagus, and sometimes roasted potatoes with rosemary is not really high on the list either. Well, I have a thing. I have an option here. I've made them a nutritious dinner, actually. It's pretty, I mean, there's, there's, there's actually good fats in the salmon. Well, that's a thing. There's good, you know, good things for them. There's nutrients in there. There's, there's stuff that they need to have. Now, I have an option. I can give them, say, oh, there's chicken nuggets over here that's been you know, squeezed out of some tubular thing. Oh, I can get you a hot dog that is processed, you know, whatever it is. I read The Jungle. Thank you, Chicago. <laughs> uh, I, I, can, I can give them all kinds of, you know, the, the, in a, a french fries that I cooked a whole different meal after I did this. And as a church, and as Christianity, I, I wonder, have we, because we just wanted people at the table, we just decided to throw chicken McNuggets at them. They don't have any health value. They just make us unhealthy. Is that what's basing our theology? Well, I don't really like what you're serving, so I'm just going to go get something else. And as a pastor, I have to be honest with you, I've been tempted or probably been guilty of throwing chicken nuggets and hot dogs at people because I want them to like me. But it's not healthy. It's not vibrant. It doesn't bring life. And so if you came to my house and we served this, and, and you watched me with my children, you'd be like, what is going to happen? My kids would eat the meal. Now, Kendall would eat it with gusto. She would absolutely love it. 
Bowen would eat the asparagus first, or the potatoes first, then the asparagus, and then that salmon would be sitting there. <laughs> but he knows, he knows something very important about his father. That I love him, but he needs to eat the food, food, the mood, the food. He knows that, he knows that. Because the first part of, a, of good theology is, good theology is consistent. He knows that tomorrow there might be his absolute favorite there. And he'll get to eat that. He knows that tomorrow it might be something he doesn't like. And I'll have to eat that because I'm consistent. He knows that if he whines about it, he can whine about it all he wants. But everybody else is going to go play Uno in the other room and he can sit there with the salmon. That's just my parenting technique. This is not a parenting message, but that's who I am. Good theology is consistent. He just knows what to expect. He knows what the ramifications are. He knows it. Good theology is consistent. Some of us have theologies on which we've based it. We're like, oh, we have this construct. We have this idea and what we heard from Oprah and what we heard from Joel Osteen and what we heard from, our, from Jared, and we've kind of amalgamated them all together and said, oh, that's theology. Here, this is my ideas. Except then we're faced with a different issue. Someone in our family's gotten sick. Someone in our family uh, has, has passed away. Something's happening in the government that we don't agree with. There's a war happening. Uh, someone in our family has, uh, is, is struggling with uh, sexual orientation issues. Something happens in our life and we're going, uh, I don't, that's not in my Oprah, Joel Osteen, Jared Hauser theology. It's because we've based it on these things and it's not consistent. What's consistent every day of the week, Monday through Sunday, is the Scripture. Good theology is consistent. Second thing, good theology, and I'm worried about this word, but I'll explain it. Good theology is flexible. Good theology is flexible. It means it can move a little bit, right? Some of us have theologies built up so rigidly. We're like a plate glass window. We are strong and nothing can move us, except if you throw a rock hard enough, we shatter. And many of us have, and when the major one that, that breaks people in this is why bad things happen to good people. We've built this theology that's so rigid, so, struck, so, so stoic, so just uh, there. And when someone close to us gets hurt or gets sick or, or passes away, psh, we just shatter into a million pieces. It's not good theology because it's too rigid. Some of us have built theologies, whatever, man, whatever's good for you, whatever's true. You're just a wet noodle. You're like, the, you're like the guy at the tax thing, right? Uh, I saw, I, Missy's like, oh, I know where he's going. Um, <laughs> that's funny. But you're like, you're like just, you're just all over the place. That's not what I'm saying either. Just flexible. Or maybe a better word for that is compassionate. That there's room for a little movement. But we've gotten so rigid that when we get hit by the storms of life, we just... Shatter, or we're so wishy-washy, we want to make everybody happy that we don't actually stand for anything. Going back to the dinner table, so you don't think I'm a monster with my, with my son. But Bowen, I know he does not like this meal. He doesn't like fish. Now I've made it as palatable as possible. I put honey on fish. Come on now. I mean, you put straight sugar on it. It should taste better, right? So I have made the, the, the salmon taste as good as I possibly can. I also do something else. I serve him a tiny portion. He gets the smallest portion. I've been flexible in it. I didn't, you know, somewhat sadistically give him like half the salmon. I like, eat it. Uh, you know, <laughs> I gave him the smallest portion possible because I am 
compassion in that. I'm flexible in that. But he knows because I'm consistent, I've got to eat this thing. The same thing with our theologies. Things have to hold true. Things have to be the same. They have to be consistent. If God is love, then God is love. If God is love, if God is love, if God is love. If God is just, then God is just, and then God is just, and God is just, God is just. Those, those have to be consistent. Sometimes they, we just like, whoop, that was too hard. We're not going to do it. It d- disagrees with my own brain, so it must be not true. That's not. The scripture's got to be informing this. So we little lead up to our final point on this is good theology is a servant to scripture. Good theology is a servant to scripture. Good theology is a servant to scripture. Actually, this should be the only point, but it's the main point. Good theology is a servant to scripture. I hate when I read the scripture and I take my preconceived notions to it. And there's a verse in here that totally blows up everything else I think. I hate when that happens. So if you have, um, maybe you grew up in a Baptist church and you grew up and it's once saved, always saved, and it's always been that way for you, then and you read a, a scripture um, like in John 14 where the vine and the branches, and if the vine doesn't bear any good fruit, you cut it away and throw it and it's going to go to hell. We got a problem because I was in the vine and Jesus cut me away and threw, threw me away. Got a problem. If you grew up in Armenian and I can lose my salvation at any time. Well, now I've got all the passages in Romans where nothing can separate me from the love of God. I've got to ask some questions here. I've got to wrestle with it. I've got to think about it. And some of us are like, no, 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 we don't want to, we don't want to think, Jared. That's work and it's painful. I just want to be, I want my hot dog and my chicken magnetic. We've got to wrestle with these ideas. Good theology is a servant to Scripture. Good theology is a servant to Scripture. So, What that means is when we take our ideas on whatever we're wrestling with and we come in contact with it in the scripture, we have to be humble enough to put the scripture above us. We have to be humble enough to ask questions. I am always open to put the scripture in context for you. You may not like my answers, but I'm always open to take emails and to take calls to say, well, I got to think about that and work on it, but I want to show you how the script, what the scripture means to you. Because some of us were like, oh, well, that has to mean this. We always have to put it in context of the scripture so it can speak to our hearts more. But it always has to be above our preconceived notions, our political affiliations, anything like that. The scripture has to take precedence. If Jesus is really Lord of our lives, then his word has to be Lord of our lives as well. I cannot stress that enough. Good theology is a servant of scripture. What does that mean, Jared? What does that look like? Well, in the earliest days of Christianity, we're talking Jesus just rose from the dead. What forms theology. There's four things that form theology from those earliest days of first century Christianity. Only four. There's only four theological statements that really matter. There's nothing about end times. There's nothing about abortion. There's nothing about um, how we should vote. There's nothing about once saved, always saved. There's nothing about any of these things. There's nothing, nothing about pre-millennials, rapture, post, any of that stuff. It's not in there. Four things. Four incredibly important foundational pillars that shape all of theology for first century church. And if that was what's shaping their church at the first century, I believe that's probably what we should be basing our theology on. Are you ready for these magnificent four things, right? 
going to be earth-shaking. First, love God. Yeah, but, no yeah, buts, love God. And in fact, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Second one is love people. I've heard those things before, Jared. Yes, because they're important. And we get other things in front of these things all the time. We put other theological arguments. We put other ways in which we, we deal with people. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. No, 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 no. Mark 12, 30 to 31 says this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and your strength. The second important thing is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no, no commandment greater than these. You want to know if your theology is good theology? Does it line up with am I loving God with everything that I am and am I loving people as myself? That's how you know if you have good theology. You just base it on those two things right there. All the rest of it is superfluous. $3 word. Okay. Um, All the rest is just extra. It doesn't matter. Are you loving God with everything that you have? Do you love people as yourself? Base all your theological questions off of that. Now you're going to get to a better place. Three, don't eat meat with blood in it or that has been sacrificed to idols. You're like, well, that's a pretty easy one for me, Jared. I I go down to Mariano's. I'm pretty sure none of the, the butcher meat's been sacrificed to any idols. Fair enough. The blood in it, though. You ever had a blood sausage? Oh. Why is this thing? One, the blood in it is they're reducing all of the kosher laws, all of the Old Testament food laws, down to one rule. Don't eat it with blood in it because that will make you sick. Right? Salmonella was a real thing then. It's a real thing now. Don't eat meat with blood in it. Okay? The other part is a idol worship thing. Basically, don't go to potluck, pagan potlucks. That's what it means. Don't go to pagan potlucks because what would happen is all these sacrifices at these temples at other cities all throughout the Euro- Europe, all throughout the Greco-Roman Empire, they would sacrifice these bulls or these pigs or whatever and then have a big potluck afterwards. Hey, free food, everybody! Well, I want free food. All my, all my, all my people are having a party. We'll go. Right? But you're not supposed to participate because participating in that food was, was consuming in the essence of that, that deity, of that pagan god. And so you got to stay away from that. So it's really a, a big issue. And for us, for us in this moment today is the way in which we live our life, the what we consume. Are we consuming stuff met for idols in our life? So we can translate this to, are we participating in the easy, low-hanging fruit of other idols because we want to fit in with our community or whatnot? So that third one is a little more difficult, but it's a little more meets the eye than just don't eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. It's meaning don't participate in that lifestyle. And the fourth is don't have sexual immorality. These are the four things that the early first century church is basing all theology on. Love God with everything you got. Number two, love people as yourself. Number three, don't participate in pagan worship. Number four, don't have sexual immorality. We have based all kinds of stuff, all kinds of extra rules, all kinds of concentric circles on, oh, well, you can't do this, and you got to believe this, and all these other things that we, we say are so important, but we've missed these four. I get so caught up in all this extra stuff, but am I really loving God? Am I really loving people? Is my life 
dedicated to other gods in my life? Have I made sports teams my God? Have I made my kids my God? Have I made all these other things God in my life? Am I failing sexually? Do I have lust in my heart? Am I having extramarital affairs? Because sexual morality to them meant something. Actually, it didn't mean anything to Greco-Romans. It meant a lot to Jews and Christians. And this is something, a hallmark of Christianity. It set them apart. Because in that time period, one of the major ways in which you would worship, a, a, especially in Corinth with the goddess of Aphrodite, is you would go up to the temple, and as your act of worship, you would have relations with a temple prostitute. And there were male and female prostitutes for you to go and worship with. It was, but you might be married. And nobody in the Greco-Roman world was like, oh, okay. Marriage in a Greco-Roman society was more about a business transaction of who's the, where the inheritance is going. And it was an economic transaction, not necessarily a, 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 a love transaction. And so when you see that butt up against the Judeo-Christian ethic of what marriage was, there was a huge difference, a gulf between the two of them. No, we, we see, see marriage as, as this beautiful, intimate cleaving of a man and a woman together. This idea that we are together forever. It's just us. No worshiping outside of this. No, 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 no tasting of other fruit. This is who we are. And that is mind-blowing to a Greco-Roman. And we're quickly getting to an age in our own country where that's going to be mind-blowing to Americans. What do you mean you didn't have sex before marriage? I had people, I, a month ago, I had someone to my face call me a liar repeatedly because I said I was a virgin until I got married. It's like, no, you didn't do that. You're a liar. Nope, you lie. I can't listen to anything else you say. Okay. All right. I really did. I was, I was, I always have something to say. I had nothing. I, okay. Um, didn't think I was going to get judged that way on that one, but okay, whatever. Um, it is foreign. And it's something that's a hallmark of what being a Christian is about, being sexual pure. So what are the four things? Love God with everything that you got. Love people with everything you got. Don't worship idols. And don't give in to sexual immorality. These are the things that, in which the early church's theology is based on. In fact, this is how, this is James, is the brother of Jesus' mindset on how we're going to, you know, how do we incorporate, incorporate Gentiles or Greeks into our faith? Acts 15, verse 19 and 20. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols from, and from sexual immorality, from the meat strangled of animals and from blood. It is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are coming to God. In our theology, as we develop it, as we think through what we believe in life, are we making it difficult for people to come to God? Sidebar on James. James is the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. I don't know about you guys. Any of you have siblings. I don't have any siblings. But I'm pretty sure anybody that has siblings, you know it's a great testament that to the authenticity of of God be, or Jesus being the son of God is that his own brother said, yep, that's it. 
Because if I look around, I bet Anthony's not like, yep, 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 yep. I think, uh, I think my, my brother could be the son of God. <laughs> that ain't happening ever. I saw him. I know what he did. That little jerk. <laughs> so I know, I think, you know, if you have siblings, you're never like, oh, but James is the brother of Jesus. He's, yep, he's the son of God. And it becomes one of the pillars in which uh, the first century church is built on. Love God. Love people. Don't worship idols. And don't have sexual immorality. These are the pillars in which our theology is supposed to be based on. It's simple. And as we look at all the things that we get caught up in, all the periphery, all the stuff that, that drives us insane, and all the arguments I know I had in college, and maybe the arguments that, that, <clears throat> that put distance between you and other people, if we look at these four, are they informing who we are, what we believe, and how we interact with Jesus? The scripture has to be the main thing. Ask yourself these hard questions with humility. Yes, that is awesome. (laughs) That, are you consistent in your theology? Are you flexible or compassionate in your theology? And is it subservient to the scripture? Do your ideas, can you, do you have the humility to say, well, the Bible said this, so the Bible's not going to change. I have to change. As we leave today, as we go set up who we are, as we try to think through how we interact and ask, answer the big questions of life, are those true for you? And if they're not, we want to go through a bunch of different issues in life where we're going to keep on hitting these things. All right, how do you come to the final answer of this? I don't like to give you, this is how you should believe. This is exactly what you should think verbatim stuff. I want to make you think. Because at the end of the day, most of that stuff doesn't matter if we're loving God with everything we have, loving people as ourselves, not giving into idol worship, and we stay pure sexually. That's our calling for us today. As a world is crying out for Christians to actually walk out what we believe, it is dying for people to show compassion and love. It is dying for an example other than the trash we have on TV. We can be that people. And in fact, it's in our, our original calling. This is the calling for you, and it's the calling for me. It's not the calling just for some pastor somewhere. It's calling for every person who calls themselves a follower of Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today, and thank you for this time. Thank you for this, this moment in life. Lord, thank you that you have not given up on us, that you love us. And you care for us that in this moment, in this time, we can be humble enough to say, God, I know I think I have the answers, but I need you to shape me. If there is haughtiness in my heart, if there is conceitedness in my heart, if I am arrogant enough to think I have all the answers, God, will you break me of that? Will you shape me? Will you show me in your scripture where I can be better, where I can draw closer to your heart? God, I thank you for this wonderful, wonderful word of God. We love you and we praise your name. Amen.